0: week is we're just going to take 15 or 20 minutes and we're going to study the word just to be encouraged. So if you have a Bible tonight, turn to first Kings chapter 18. If you don't, now's the time to get to know the person next to you. First Kings chapter 18, you know, prayer is, as Brad kind of alluded to, is one of the most amazing privileges that we have as believers, that we're allowed to go to God's holy presence, that we're allowed to go to his throne and and have fellowship with him and to ask him for things that we need and that he answers those requests and based on that it's hard to understand why we don't utilize it more why as believers we don't take more opportunity to pray more often especially when he promises us that when we call he'll come near and that when we call he'll respond and that when we call he'll meet every single need we have not just a little bit, not just part way, but with abundance. And yet, prayer is one of the most undervalued things that we have as Christians. It's set aside in most churches. You don't know, well, maybe you do, I don't mean that pejoratively, how rare, how unheard of it is to do what we're doing tonight in the vast majority of churches. If you go back 50 years, every church on Wednesday night pretty much had a potluck and a prayer meeting, right? Some of us are old enough to remember those days. I know I am. But now, if you say, we're going to have a prayer meeting, people go, "Mm, I don't think so. So what we're doing tonight, the precedence that we're trying to send is is counterculture. Churches don't do this anymore. And, And what's interesting is, if you talk to most pastors and you say, Would you think it would be a benefit if your congregation came together once a week and prayed? Almost without fail, every pastor that I know or have talked to has said, absolutely, it would be the most important thing we could do. And yet, there's this tide against prayer. and, And prayer has a tremendous source of power for us and a tremendous source of security. And it is all based on one thing. It is based on the fact that the Lord says, When you call on me, I promise, I promise, I will answer. When you call on me, you have my word. My word is unshakable. My word is is never breakable. When you call, I will answer. In Psalm 34, David affirms this. He says, The Lord hears hears me and saves me out of all my troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. Now, that's an incredible reality. And the enemy tries every single day to tell us it's an absolute lie. The enemy's biggest priority, one of his biggest priorities, if not the biggest priority, is to say, believer, I do not want you to understand the power of prayer. I do not want you to understand that when you call on the Lord, he encamps around you. That when you fear him, that when you trust him, that when you seek him, that that's when he gets the most active to come near you and to take care of you. I don't want you to know that. So I'm going to do everything I can because the enemy doesn't want us to know how much prayer scares him. When we call on him. He gets frightened. I see a lot of these things on Facebook. Well, if you do this and this, the enemy runs away from you. I don't know if those things are true. But I can tell you for absolute fact, when you pray, the enemy gets scared. He hates it. He hates fellowship with the Lord. He hates intimacy with the Lord. He hates watching the Lord lavish his grace upon his people. It makes him sick to his stomach. If you've ever read the book Screwtape Letters, you know that Lewis was so right when he said, it just makes me sick, the devil speaking. It makes me sick when I see him lavish his grace on those people. He hates it. So he does everything he can to try to get us not to pray. He makes us busy, and he distracts us, and he tries to emphasize everything else because he knows that when God's children call on his name, that he answers. Now, that's an important fact for us tonight. And the question that kind of rises up then is, do we believe that as much as the devil does? Can you imagine that sentence? That we're actually in competition with the devil for how much we believe in what God says he'll do? I guarantee you that the devil believes tonight that when we call, God answers. That's why he fights it. But do we believe it? Do we believe it the way he does? Now, part of the challenge for us is that the Lord doesn't always answer in the way that we might expect. If we had our way, human nature says, I wish the Lord would just verbally speak to me like he did in the old days. Remember? Moses went up in the mountain and he met face to face with God. Wouldn't that be cool? little intimidating, right? But it would be cool to walk into the place tonight and God's presence comes down physically and, and visually into the room and he starts talking to us. That would be really cool. Or, or let's just let's make it easier. If, if God you know, wrote on the wall... Okay, uh, Paul Rhodes, here's what I have for you this week. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how you know to trust me. Here are the things that I'm going to produce in your life. You go, oh, that's awesome. In fact, I was talking to Donna this afternoon in the hospital, and I said, I said Donna, I'm not trying to be trite, but the Lord's trying to teach you guys something. I don't know what it is, and it's, it's wild, but he wants something from you. He wants you to learn something, and she looked at me and she said, I just want to know what it is. And I thought, that's exactly what we're studying tonight. I just want to know. Lord, just tell me. That's reasonable, right? We all have had that feeling. And we'd love to know exactly what he's going to do. we love when we call for him to answer clearly, concisely, quickly. And, and if we could help it in line with our will, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be wonderful. But that's not the way God always works. And part of the maturation process is realizing that he does answer prayer, but the way he answers it sometimes is designed to teach us about his character or about his ways or about his plans or about us. And the variance in the way God answers prayer sometimes is really evident here in these two passages we're going to really briefly look at tonight in 1 Kings 18 and 19 because the Lord responds to Elijah when he prays The Lord responds in two completely different ways. Both of them are powerful, but both of them have a different tone and a different purpose. Now, we know the account, I hope, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Carmel. How many know that story pretty well? All right? Most of us. I'll summarize for those that don't. The nations in deep rebellion, Israel, um, they have wandered away from the Lord. They're worshiping idols far more prevalently than they're worshiping God. The king at this point is Ahab, his lovely bride Jezebel. They are the epitome of everything that's wrong about Israel. They're evil and they're ungodly. And God has said, I'm so disgusted with Israel that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Drought always being a symbol of lack of blessing. Anytime you see rain, it's the blessing of God in Scripture. Anytime you see drought, it's a sign that God's taken his hands off. So for three and a half years, God takes his hands off of Israel and says there's not going to be a drop of rain. Now, Elijah at this point is really the lone prophet for the Lord. He has completely and miraculously experienced the Lord's provision, and now he gets a word from the Lord, and the Lord says, Elijah, it's going to rain. After three and a half years, now I'm sending rain. But something needs to happen first. You need to gather all the people together. And we're going to call the people out. We're going to ask them, who do you want to serve? Because for years, my nation has turned against me. So they have a contest. They build two altars on the top of Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal have one altar. And Elijah has the other one. And Elijah stands before the people and he says, here's the deal. Whoever's God sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. That's the real God. So I'll let you guys go first. Pretty sure of the outcome. He, he can confidently say, knock yourselves out, kids. Go ahead. you, you Dance around, cut yourself, cry out to Baal, do whatever you want. But you've got to produce fire from heaven. Now, this is the spiritual tipping point. If the people at this point don't get this right then all bets are off. If the people don't get this right, then God may remove his hand even further and it may accelerate his discipline. But if they will turn back to the Lord, God's mercy and his grace is ready. So Elijah is calling them to make a decision. He's calling them to take a stand before the Lord, which was not where their hearts were. And there's a spiritual principle we've got to get tonight. When we don't take a stand For the Lord, and we don't take a stand against sin, it not only puts us in a a vulnerable position, but it also precipitates spiritual decline to those decline to those that are around us. I'm glad the youth are in here tonight because this really is applicable for you guys. That if you don't take a stand for the Lord, and I'll talk to the adults in a minute, if you guys don't take a stand for the Lord. And against sin, not only will you struggle spiritually, but those around you will also struggle spiritually. Adults, is that true? Is what I said just true? Same thing applies to us. That if we're not taking a stand, if we're not being bold for the Lord, if we're not saying sin has no place in our lives, then not only will it affect our walk, but guess who will it affect? Our kids. Our kids. And our co-workers and our church and people around us because they're going to be looking at us and saying, why are you giving in? I thought you were a Christian. And that's exactly where they are. Israel never got that connection. They constantly failed to understand that their worst enemy was not the Philistines and it was not the Amorites and it was not the Moabites and it was not the Canaanites. Their worst enemy was them because they did not take a stand, they were spiritually calloused, they were carnal, they had no conviction, and that led to a collective spiritual weakness that drugged them down and invited the discipline of the Lord. Okay, so let's get to our account here. The contest at Carmel now, because of that, has two purposes. And both are directed at those who at this point are not are not supposedly unbelievers, these are God's chosen people. So there are two purposes why God allows this. First is to call the people out of their sin and to worship and their worship of substitute gods. He says, we're doing this because we're going to call you out, and are you going to really follow these gods, Baal and Asherah and all these other gods that you've created, or are you going to worship the Lord? Now, the drought had heightened people's awareness of that rebellion. The drought had brought to mind that Israel was far away from the Lord, and it had gotten so bad that not only were the people worshiping Baal and Asherah, Asherah was like a a pole in the wilderness where they did all sorts of depraved things, and Baal was just an idol, a statue that they worshiped. So the people are not only worshiping Baal and Asherah, but now they're starting to hunt the prophets of the Lord. And the prophets of the Lord, it tells us in the chapter before, are basically hiding in caves. They're scared for their lives because the people have become so carnal. And not only are Israel and Judah divided, but now Israel, which is the ten tribes, starts to split in half itself. And at some point in the chapter before, they have two kings and both of them are evil. So you have Judah, which is two tribes. You have Israel, which is ten. And Israel is divided into two. And both kings are evil. And the people are taking sides. And along comes Ahab. And Ahab brings everybody together, but not in a good way. Because Ahab is called the most evil king who's evil than all the other kings. So there's no moral compass. There's nobody standing for the Lord other than Elijah. There's there's no leaders that are doing the right thing. The, The religious leaders are hiding... And essentially, nobody's worshiping Jehovah. So God says, we've got we've to call you out of sin. You've got to make a decision. And second, I want to confront anyone who believes in anything other than me. Because when God calls us out of something, he calls us to something. And man throughout the centuries and throughout the generations has always looked for alternatives to the true God. And this is one of the most obvious examples in history. I've always studied this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And I've always just kind of taken it for granted. And Elijah calls a contest and everybody gathers together. It's really cool. And they got the altars and he pours water and fire comes down from him and all that. But it struck me as I was studying this passage again, the fact that they even needed a concept was ama- a contest was amazing. After all the Lord had done for them, after all the ways he had been faithful, after David's kingdom, after the temple in Jerusalem, after how God had blessed them, the fact that there is a contest to challenge the people will you follow the Lord or not? shows the depth of their sin and the depth of their self worship. But God's not indifferent at this point, He never is. How many know God's never indifferent? Even to the worst sinner, who I was, and who you were, and who you were, and who you were. We're all the worst sinners. God's never indifferent. He is always willing to come with His grace and mercy. So while there's only one guy, Elijah, there's only one guy who's standing for the Lord. That's all God needed. Not because he was dependent on Elijah and his strength and his courage and his power. God didn't need Elijah's help at all, but Elijah was willing to stand, and Elijah was willing to pray. And he becomes the catalyst for the work of God, which is unleashed through prayer. Let's read what happens. Chapter 18, that's a—that's at least half the message, so don't worry, that's not just the introduction. It says, let me find the right verse here. Chapter 18, verse 29. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering, but there was no voice. I love the next lines. No one answered, and no one paid attention, speaking of the gods that they're crying out to. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench round the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, very quickly, I want to show you two prayers that Elijah prays. The prayers that he prays are a couple days apart, 48, 72 hours tops. And yet they are completely different in their attitude and their scope. The first prayer, we just saw it, is in verses 36 and 37, where Elijah prays one of the great prayers of the Bible. This is one of the awesomest prayers that anybody prayed. Notice in that prayer how absolutely, completely, unequivocally certain Elijah is of who the Lord is. Notice how absolutely sure he is. There's not an ounce of doubt. There's not an ounce of equivocation. He's not just hopeful. He's not, oh, Lord, I hope hope you're up there. I hope you hear me. I'm really on the line here. I got myself out in the wind. I got 150 prophets of Baal and just me, so you better. There's none of that. It is completely, absolutely certain that the Lord will immediately respond. Now, we're told in James 1 to pray and to pray by faith without wavering. That's spoken in James 1 about praying for wisdom, but it really applies to all prayer. And Elijah's strength and confidence here, look back at the prayer, begins with acknowledging the faithfulness of the Lord in past generations. And then he says, Lord, we should have been worshiping you. We should have had you in the midst of what's going on, and, and we didn't. And, Lord, I'm praying, not beating my chest, not going, look at me. I'm standing for the Lord. Lord, you're proud of me, right? Isn't this great, Lord? I am up here. The prophets of Baal, they made fools of themselves for six hours, but I'm here. And, Lord, I'm telling, you to, I'm telling you to answer now because I stood for you. Is there any of that in his prayer? What's he call himself? He said, I'm your servant. And look at why he prays. He says, Lord, I want you to do something miraculous and I'm asking you to do it because it will turn the hearts of the people. Lord, I'm your servant and you clearly are God and I am praying that you will work so you will turn the heart of the people. There are times when we need to pray and we need to ask the Lord to work in a way that can only be described as miraculous. Now, don't be nervous about that word. That's a Bible word, right? Don't be nervous about the word miraculous. It's not strange. It's not mystical. It's not ooh, over the top. Wow, we can't use the word miracle. I know it can be overused. But listen, there are times we need to pray for something miraculous. Because when the Lord does a miracle... Almost without fail, here's why. To either draw somebody to new faith in him or to draw somebody that is struggling or cold in their faith to a deeper faith. God doesn't just throw around miracles. Well, part the Red Sea, and I'll bring manna from heaven, I'll bring fire from heaven, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, I'll heal a leper, I'll heal a person who's dead, I'll heal the demoniac, I'll just do it for kicks to show off. It'll be great. Look at me, I'm God. He does miracles. Listen, this is so important. He does miracles so that people will trust in him. And that's what Elijah prays. Lord, do this. Not so I'm justified. Not because it'll be really cool special effects. Not because we're going to show those people how rebellious they've been, those stinking people. Lord, bring fire from heaven so the people would turn back to you. And that's exactly what happens. He prays. Instantly, fire comes down. Baal is proven as a fraud. Ahab's influence is weakened, and the people start to worship God as the true God. Now you say, all right, that's great, Paul. What does it have to do with me? How does that apply to our prayer Because this is an account of something that happened thousands of years ago on some mountain in Israel that I'll never visit. So why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. One truth we need to understand tonight is that when we pray, we need to be unhesitant to call on the Lord to do a big work. We need to be unhesitant to call on the Lord to do a big work things that can only be attributed to him things where when god answers we go that's the lord how many know that's the lord there's there's no other explanation that could only be the lord we need to pray that way and when we do we need to pray lord as a result of you doing this would you draw people to yourself we need to pray evangelistically Because when God starts to work, God then will draw people to himself. And then we need to be ready to say, oh, let me tell you what's going on here. This is so cool. God's working. And let me tell you how I know God's working. Because he's changed me. And because he's changed me, I recognize this. I want you to know it too. Because God is doing a work to draw you to him. Now, I don't know how often you and I pray that way. But we certainly need to pray more that way. Why? Why is this so important? Not only because we want people to come themselves, but because the alternative is bothersome. Turn over to the next chapter just for a moment. This is vitally important. We'll close with this. Without that mindset of prayer, without calling on the Lord that way, And saying, Lord, show your power so you'll show yourself and so people will be drawn to you. If we don't pray that way, it is very easy for our prayer then to become self-focused. Even for the most faithful servant of God. This is in the next chapter. Look at chapter 19. Very quickly, let me summarize. God says it's going to rain. Elijah goes up on a mountain and he prays tells Ahab to go back to Jerusalem, goes up on a mountain, prays seven times, finally sees a little cloud shaped like a fist. And God says, get down, go to Jerusalem, because it's about to pour. And as he's running, it starts to pour. But here's the problem. Jezebel, the lovely queen, hears about what's happened and how the prophets of Baal have been humiliated and then killed, and she puts out a hit on Elijah's life and says, by the end of tomorrow, you're dead. I'm taking you down. And nobody doubted that she could do it. So Elijah, here's what he does. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. The Lord... Ministers to him, sends an angel to him. The angel gives him some food and some water to sustain him. Elijah then runs 40 days more into the wilderness. And he goes into a cave. You know the story, but let me just read it real fast. Verse 9. He came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came and said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars. There's a little edge to his voice here and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away like God doesn't know this. Verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking pieces, the rocks for the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go to verse 17. Excuse me, verse 18. I have three, seven thousand people of Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Go back to verse 4 for a minute. Let's conclude. What a contrast to the prayer that he prayed a few days before. Just days after the great victory of the Lord on the top of Mount Carmel and the confidence that Elijah had, he said, Lord, I'm your servant and your God and you're going to bring fire down from heaven and it's going to rain and the people are going to turn back to you and it's going to be awesome. Just a few days later, Elijah is in a ball of self-pity and fear and his certainty is gone because he's thinking in a completely different direction. And his thinking is no different than the people's thinking had been at Carmel when they were concentrating on themselves and not trusting in the Lord. And that may seem harsh, but we have to look at Elijah's words and say, where is anything that's pleasing to the Lord? He has no confidence in God's provision. He was fed by ravens at the river. He had the oil that never expired when he was living in Zarephath. He had God's provision at Carmel. And now he's filled with doubt and anxiety and even a desire to control the situation. Lord, I can't do it. Jezebel put a hit on me. I can't take it. Now you need to take my life. Kind of telling God what to do. Look, the situation's untenable. You got to take me. In a very short time, he lost his perspective about the power and provision of the Lord. Now, here's what I want to show you. Look at the Lord's response. You would think, as a parent, when my kids frustrate me, and they're in the room, and they're going to hear me say this, and they know it's true. When my kids frustrate me, when they doubt me, when when they act ungrateful, so to speak, my response god is my judge with them in the room is not always calm i know it's a shock i know it's a shock my response is not always even and measured well you really are being ungrateful and we need to talk about that you're frustrating me but it's okay The natural response is to get even more irritated, right? Anybody else want to fess up to that? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I wasn't out. <laughs> I was just discussing it with myself. Isn't it amazing the restraint that the Lord shows? Come on, this is good about the grace of God. Look at the restraint he shows. He feeds Elijah, Elijah keeps running. He goes up into a cave and he defends himself. I'm frustrated. I'm the only one. Have you seen what's happening? I'm the only one who's left. They've persecuted the prophets. I stood for the Lord. I'm irritated. God says, Go stand on the mountain. And there's a great wind, and there's an earthquake, and there's a fire. And then there's a gentle wind, and there's a voice. And the voice asks the same questions in verse 9. What are you doing here? The fact of the calmness of the Lord's response is important. Because where the fire at Carmel was powerful and almost violent in confronting sin, look how God confronts the pride of his children. He's very quiet, and he's very calm. And when the Lord answers, I found this to be true in my life. When the Lord answers calmly and quietly to our prayers, it is time for us to get some perspective. His restraint is very powerful. And when God restrains himself and kind of talks quietly, like my kids know that if I'm frustrated and all of a sudden if I start to talk like this, I'm probably pretty serious. It's time to get down to business. When the Lord quietly responds, it's time for us to put aside our justification and our excuses and our objections and our arguments and to humble ourselves before him because humbling ourselves before him is always a good thing. What does he say in 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and what? Notice the order. If you will humble yourself and then pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive your sin and I'll hear your land. I want to challenge us tonight. We're done. I want to challenge us tonight to look at the focus of our prayers in two areas. One is when I pray for the Lord to work, is it for me or is it to draw somebody else to the Lord? Because if we start to pray that way, Lord, do a miraculous work. Lord, heal Scott Peterson tonight. Why? Because we want our brother not to suffer? Absolutely. But you know why I really want Scott to be healed? So we can praise the Lord and so people come to faith. That's why we want to pray for Scott to be healed. And as we pray for ourselves, that we ask the Lord to keep us humble. Humble. Because if we're not humble, God won't hear our prayers. And I'll start to talk like this. You better get yourself straight. Humble yourself. I love the line at the end where God says, get back to Jerusalem. I know you feel alone. But there are 7,000 people that have never bowed to Baal. Go find them. Quit thinking about yourself and go get some help. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we ask you tonight to speak to us in terms of how we think and how we pray. Lord, what a privilege to be able to come to you. We sang it earlier. What a privilege to carry everything to you in prayer. We forfeit a lot of things, and we don't take advantage of that. And, Lord, I pray for new perspective for my own life tonight, for the lives of my brothers and sisters and these teenagers. I pray for a new perspective that as we call on you, that we would call for you to do big works. But, Lord, the reason we would ask that is so you would be magnified and so people would come to faith in you. And, Lord, that as we pray... And make our requests known, which you tell us to do, that we would come humbly and dependently, knowing that we deserve nothing and you give everything. We thank you and praise you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to gather together night and just to come into your presence. What a joy it has been to be in your presence. You protect our going out and our coming in. And we ask you to do that as we leave tonight, that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would guide us, and that we would honor you in everything that we do. We praise you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the time we've had together tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen.